Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. wake of recent news stories about UFOs and UAPs, several podcasts and channels that I follow were dipping their toes into the debate over aliens, whether they exist, whether we've been visited by them, and so on. I'm basically agnostic about the subject, so I was interested. The first long-form podcast that I heard on the subject was on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, which had posted a conversation between Jimmy, Cameron Bertuzzi, and Tyler McNabb, which had originally happened over on Capturing Christianity. And it was a great conversation. Jimmy Aiken, who's our guest today, was extremely knowledgeable. In his contributions, he was cautious, thorough, he anticipated a lot of objections and steel-manned them, and it was overall a really great conversation. Then, I started listening to some other podcasts and YouTube channels that were also covering the same stories, and I realized that the bar had been set a little bit high. The same degree of quality was not met on these other shows. Frustratingly, I heard the same objections trotted out over and over again as if UFO believers had never heard them and had no response at all to them. So I thought we could hopefully improve the quality of the discourse by helping to advance it past those initial thoughts that are pretty commonly offered. So we'll be addressing 10 very common objections, talking points, etc. that are offered by skeptics. And hopefully they will take this into account going forward and become better skeptics, actually understanding the position they're criticizing and helping to move the conversation into more interesting territory instead of holding it back and just spinning their wheels and never getting past those first stages. So that's why we're here today. I'm joined by Jimmy Aiken, Senior Apologist for Catholic Answers and co-host of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Emerson. Great to be here. Um, I am a fan of Mysterious World, so would you mind explaining the show a bit for people who haven't heard of it? Yeah, sure. So um, it's a weekly podcast that I do. It comes out at least every Friday, and we sometimes have bonus episodes that appear at at other points in the week. Um, Every Friday, we look at a mysterious topic, and the mysteries are all over the map in terms of the kinds of mysteries they are. Sometimes it's a, a purely natural mystery, like a scientific mystery or a historical mystery. We even sometimes do a little bit of true crime. Um, it could be a paranormal mystery, including, you know, cryptids or UFOs. It could be, it could involve psychic functioning. It could involve a religious mystery. As long as it's mysterious, I'm happy to look at it. And, um, and what we do is we, uh, present the background on the mystery, and then we try to analyze it. One of the things a lot of mystery-oriented shows do is they don't really try to solve the mysteries. Instead, what they do is they just want to generate wonder and imagine what if this were true and things like that. Um, and, And that's not my approach. What we try to do is solve them to the extent they can be solved. Uh, Sometimes we're able to eliminate some possibilities. Uh, What we do is after we typically after we present the background to the mystery, we make a list of possibilities of what could explain this. And we start with natural non-exotic 
explanations. And then we go through the list and see what can we eliminate? What what is not a good explanation for it? Or even if, even if a given explanation will explain some of the cases we're talking about, it may not be a good explanation for all of them. And so we proceed through the list. We use the twin perspectives of faith and reason. Typically, we start with the reason perspective and we say, what would reason tell us about this? And we try to we try to solve it as much as we can. Sometimes we get down to there's really only one solution to this. Sometimes it's there are a few that are left on the table. Um, and then we'll say, OK, so what would the Christian faith have to say about this? And specifically, since I'm a Catholic, what would the Catholic understanding of the Christian faith have to say about it? And so we include that. But we're not looking at things simply from a doctrinal point of view where we keep the faith and reason segments separate, at least typically. If it's a religious mystery, it's a little harder to do that. But we, we you know, try to keep our disciplines separate and look at it from both perspectives um, in a in a pretty rigorous way. Uh, one of the things that we do is um, just because. Well, for example, um, sometimes as I'm researching and writing about a subject, uh, I, uh, arguments will occur to me, and sometimes they are arguments that I haven't seen in the literature. So these are arguments that I could actually claim credit for, um, but I don't spare them. Uh, and I've had uh, I've had people write in and say, "This is what I love so much about this show." Here's my argument. Now, here's five reasons why I'm wrong. And so I try to be scrupulously fair uh, and open-minded, but also use critical thinking in approaching the mysteries we do. Yeah, well, if you haven't checked out the show already, then uh, you definitely should. So let's, um, yeah, let's go into these 10 objections. Uh, sure. The first one has uh, been popular for the last, you know, six or seven years or so. This is called the President Trump Objection. Hmm. If the government knew of alien visitations, Trump would have learned about it. If Trump knew about it, he wouldn't have been able to keep his mouth shut about it. But Trump never said anything about UFOs or aliens. Therefore, the government doesn't have knowledge of alien visitations. Okay, so there's I appreciate the humor of this objection. And um, there are a few things that I would say about it. The first one is it's actually not true that he said nothing about uh, about UFOs uh, or UAPs, uh, as they're often called these days. He was asked about it after the 2017 New York Times article came out um, talking about the um, Defense Department's ATIP program that was had been set up to investigate such claims. Um, he was he was asked in interviews about it, and he was not particularly supportive of the claims of the uh, interpretation, I should say, of the claims that were being visited by extraterrestrials. He said he didn't really think a lot about it. Um, he did try to be supportive, though, of the pilots. He didn't want to dismiss the pilots or belittle the pilots, but he 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 was he did not come across as an alien believer. So even though he he has said some stuff on this topic, it's not true that he said nothing. He didn't endorse the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So let's back up in the argument. Um, is it true that if the government knew about him, knew about knew that we were being visited by extraterrestrials, that Trump would have known about it? No, that's a false premise uh, for two reasons. Um, one, uh, a lot of these, a lot, there have been government programs on this, like ATIP, but the government is a bureaucracy in 
case you haven't noticed. And one of the things about bureaucracies, especially the classified parts of them, tend not to talk to each other. They tend not to be very communicative. And so um, I could see how just because of bureaucratic secretiveness, um, any such knowledge of extraterrestrials could be very tightly held and not communicated to President Trump. There also, and this is a claim that UFO believers will say, and I I probably should clarify, I'm not a UFO believer. I think it is probable that, I think it's very probable that life exists elsewhere in the universe. And I think it's probable that intelligent life exists elsewhere. I'm open to the idea that we may be visited by extraterrestrials, but I have yet to um, consider, I have yet to find a case that I think proves that. So I'm open on the UF, on the UAP UFO phenomena, but it, in terms of could they, could these be extraterrestrials, but I'm not convinced of that. However, people who are convinced of that have uh, an explanation, which I think is quite plausible, um, precisely because presidents come and go and not all presidents are to everyone's liking. Um, And some presidents can even be unstable. Uh, The claim is that not all presidents are brought in to the circle on this, that uh, sometimes knowledge is deliberately withheld from U.S. presidents uh, so that they can't spill the beans unnecessarily. And I could easily imagine and, and, you know, we do know that people in the government sometimes withhold information from the president so that, for example, he can have plausible deniability. Well, this would just be another application of that. And I can easily imagine people in in the background, in the classified world saying, "Okay, huh, we got this Donald Trump guy. He's a little flamboyant. You know, he's 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 a reality TV show star. Do we want to let this guy know about the aliens or is he going to say something that's going to make our our lives a whole lot worse? Maybe we want to just keep this close to the vest and not tell Donald Trump about it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one one phrase that I hear mentioned when this objection is brought up is temporary employees, which is how some, you know, view elected officials and just, you know, on on elected officials being, you know, considered temporary employees. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say that there are permanent um, employees, but there are less impermanent no, figures who are uh, career employees. Yeah. 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 And, much, and, much less imp- impermanent figures. And there are, you know, shady characters, but they don't have to be, mm-hmm. you know, like they're not all like Alan Dulles or, you know, J. Edgar Hoover who served under, you know, who served in different intelligence agencies under, you know, many different administrations. Um, and both were involved in activities that the executive branch didn't know about. You know, mm-hmm. they're all, they're also, not so shady people who are, you know, less impermanent uh, career figures. There's a great uh, British sitcom, if you ever want to check it out, called Yes Minister. Um, And eventually it becomes Yes Prime Minister. But it's about a gentleman who is a minister of parliament. Initially, he later becomes prime minister. But he's a he's a minister of parliament and he is supported by the by his aides who are all um, career employees. 
And there's a very clear distinction between mm-hmm. it, between it, that illustrates exactly what you're talking about. But on the show, the comedy comes from the fact that the minister is trying to bring about change and do things and implement new policies. And the bureaucrats who are the career employees that surround him are systematically thwarting what he wants to do mm-hmm. and reining him in and trying, well, minister, we certainly could do that, but this would be the consequence. And, and it's all about the difference between the permanent career employees and their interests versus the minister who's trying to represent his own views and what he perceives as the people's best interests. It kind of goes along with um, Jerry Purnell's iron law of bureaucracy, which is that any bureaucracy will eventually come to serve the interests of the bureaucrats and not the people who it's meant to serve. And so in a government context, you would think, oh, they're the government officials. They're our representatives. They're there to serve our interests. Yeah, but they're also sitting on top of a bureaucracy that's going to serve its own interests. Yeah, well, that, that sounds like a great show. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, and I've, I've also heard about just different people in Congress who have like the same aides and the same staff. Mm-hmm. from like previous people who were, <laughs> who were like, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't win their elections. It's just like, yeah, there, there are just these. uh these more permanent figures. Um, some of them are kind of sinister, like Alan Dulles or Hoover. Mm-hmm. And some of them are, you know, yep. more like the, the more comic figures. And then, you know, people in between maybe like, um, you know, like uh, Nick Pope, you know, someone who talks mm-hmm. about UFOs. Um, he was in the UK ministry of defense, I think for mm-hmm. like over 20 years. Yep. And he manned the UFO desk for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to also mention presidents in the United States government are uniquely temporary because if you're a president, you get a four-year term and maybe you get a second four-year term, but that's it. After that, you're out of office because presidents, unlike members of Congress and, and senators, are term limited. So they're especially temporary employees. Okay, so the President Trump objection, not quite as devastating as, as some people seem to uh, to think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but this next one, uh, the too many people objection, this is like another very common one. There would yep. have to be too many people involved in a cover up of alien visitations. So someone would accidentally let it slip or blow the whistle eventually. And to quote Bill Nye, the government kind of sucks at keeping secrets. Well, um, with all due deference to Bill Nye, the science comedian, um, (laughs) the government does sometimes suck at keeping secrets, but not all the time. Um, So I guess I'd have three responses here. The first one is there actually are a lot of classified programs that we never hear about. And they, they, they're, you know, weapon systems and other things that are in research that, you know, people actually do keep their security oaths. And the more important they perceive their security oath to be, the more likely they are to keep it. And, and there have been numerous people who have, you know, said, I know stuff, but I just can't talk about it because of my security. Um, my security oath prevents me from doing that. I swore this oath. I take it seriously. And and as a result, there's lots of stuff we just don't know about. What we do know is how much money is being spent in general terms. And it is a vast amount of money on dark projects. And if you say, okay, so what's responsible? What are they spending it on? We don't know. 
And that means that a lot of dark projects are genuinely dark. We just don't know what's happening. Um, so I think I think that um, I think that Bill Nye is underestimating the ability of many in the government to keep things secret. Uh, secondly, I don't think you need that many people to be involved in such a program. Um, if we were, if we had a massive UFO research program, then, uh, then yeah, sure, you'd need a large number of people involved, and the odds are that some of them would, would spill the beans. But I don't know that that's what we have. Um, if you, if, when ATIP became public, it turns out they were running that on a shoestring. And there were a small number of people involved in that. And the, if, if that's true of other classified UFO related programs, and there actually may not be that many people involved. The third response, and this is one you'll get from a lot of UFO believers, is people have been spilling the beans. Duh. <laughs> David Grush is not the first. Read the UFO literature. There have been former government and military officials saying this for decades. So actually they would say there have been a lot of bean spillers. And so the objection that not, if there would be too many people involved, someone would spill the beans. Lots of somebodies have been spilling the beans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, but like there are some things, though, that have been declassified because they aren't really sensitive anymore. And it mm -hmm. turns out that secrets have been kept involving mm -hmm. hundreds, sometimes thousands of people for decades. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like when people say this kind of thing, like, oh, too many, there would be, you know, there would be an Edward Snowden. There would be like there would have to be some leak or like some mistake or something. It's like I don't know where it, it's like, do they just not know about some of these things or, or, or what? Because it just seems like uh, impossible to maintain when you look at the fact that governments have kept secrets mm -hmm. successfully yeah. involving lots and lots of people, you know, sometimes very sensitive ones for many decades. Now, you mentioned that um, things get declassified when they're no longer important. Well, that's true. They frequently do. Uh, they don't get classified as quickly or as fully as they should because secrecy breeds secrecy. And so the government keeps things secret just because it can. Um, but guess what? The UFO issue is still relevant. It's not it's not something that's obsolete now. I mean, if we let's suppose we make contact with aliens and they turn out to be our best buds and we we join a galactic federation. Well, at that point, they might declassify our early contact files. But as long as we're not best buds with the aliens, they're there or as long as the aliens say, please keep us on the down low, they're not going to declassify that stuff. And so it's still going to be classified. It's not like, um, you know, 19th century technology that we can declassify the secret U.S. dirigible program because we have things much better than dirigibles now. We don't got UFOs. We don't have things much better than UFOs right now. So the UFO tech is still going to be classified if we have it. Yeah. And, you know, there would still be some resistance to declassifying things if there were if there was anything in those files that made the government look bad. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, especially in a time when people are like more cynical and more distrustful, mm -hmm. you know, like they, they keep delaying, you know, the release of certain um, documents pertaining to JFK and they yep. keep citing national security and people laugh at it every time because what could it possibly like? How could it possibly involve national security at this point? Mm -hmm. And everyone, it seems like 
everyone who I've heard talk about this, even if they're not like a JFK conspiracy theorist, they're still mm-hmm. just like, well, they probably just don't want to declassify it because the CIA was up to all kinds of things that they wouldn't want people to know about because it makes them look horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if it well, even if it wasn't like, oh, yeah, it turns out they killed JFK, even if it has nothing to do with that, they probably still don't want it declassified because it might make them look bad. Yeah, it took a long time, for example, to get confirmation of some of Lee Harvey Oswald's ties with the FBI mm-hmm. because they learned really quickly. Oh, wait, we've had we've we this guy is on our books at the FBI. He had like, among other things, one of the things that is known about his connection is he had sent an angry letter to the FBI. Um, This is one of the few things that did survive. He had sent an angry letter to the FBI saying, stop harassing my wife, Marina. And they uncovered that fact really quickly after the assassination. And they, they tried to cover up uh, that he had any connection with them, but eventually it came out. In terms of um, making the government look bad. Now, I'm, this is not my belief, but I'm going to tell you what a lot of UFO people have said. Not, And this is not necessarily a majority in the UFO community, a majority opinion in the UFO community. But um, one of the claims is that we, the United States, has a treaty with extraterrestrial intelligences. And one of the terms of that treaty is in exchange for technology we allow them to kidnap and abduct a certain number of human beings. How would that go down if that came out? Would the American public be okay with President Eisenhower or someone agreeing to let aliens abduct human beings and run traumatic experiments on them? Mm -hmm. I'm guessing no. That That would be put in the same category as, for example, the Tuskegee Airmen, where, uh, or, you know, um, various other nasty government experiments on people that were done without informed consent. And if we were letting the aliens do nasty experiments on us without informed consent, that would be viewed very negatively as a government action. That's exactly the kind of thing the government would not want to fess up to. Right. So, oh, uh, One more thing I wanted to say about the too many people objection before we move on. Mm -hmm. I know that skeptics uh, primarily um, reason by way of logical fallacies. So uh, I have a logical fallacy here to help them uh, understand this point. And we can call it the wig fallacy or Mm -hmm. the uh, AI image fallacy. So the fallacy is basically I can always tell when someone is wearing a wig. It's like, well, maybe you can know you you notice when people are wearing a bad wig, Mm -hmm. but, you know, kind of by definition, you can't notice someone who's wearing a really good wig Mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, the same with AI generated images. You know, I can always tell when an image is AI generated. Well, I mean, maybe it's obvious sometimes, but maybe there are really good ones and you can't tell. So Mm -hmm. saying like, oh, the government is bad at keeping secrets. Well, except all the times it's good (laughs) at it and you don't have that data. Exactly. Like you, you cite times where they didn't keep the secret because you can only cite the times when they didn't keep the secrets and Mm -hmm. you have no idea what the overall set is. Um, But yeah, so I think that's a, that's a helpful uh, illustration the the AI image fallacy or the wig fallacy. Yep. So uh, moving along to the crash objection, this is another favorite one. Okay. Um, So, you know, these super advanced aliens can build technology that to us is nearly indistinguishable from magic. They can travel all the way here with that technology. And then when they get here, they crash into the surface of the earth. Um, Mm -hmm. But aliens this advanced just wouldn't crash their ships like that. Mm -hmm. 
So I think there are a number of things that can be said in response to this one. Now, I think this one has some I think this one has some degree of plausibility. One of the things that I find difficult to credit in the current UFO whistleblower David Grush's testimony is the claim that we have the uh, we have material from 12 different craft extraterrestrial craft that were either crashed or abandoned and 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 that's I don't I don't easily credit that. And and partly it's for this reason. If they have advanced technology, then why would we have so many crashes that we can get 12 from presumably mostly our own territory since we don't have access to what crashes in Russia or China? Um, so I think this one has a, a I think it has some credibility as an objection. Um at the same time, if I say, well, how would I respond if I was convinced that we that we did have such material? Well, OK. Or, or if I if I was convinced that UFOs are coming here, I guess the first thing I would say is, OK, so all the crash reports are wrong. That doesn't mean aliens aren't coming here. It just means these reports are wrong and we don't really have any material from them. Um, another thing that I would say if I thought we did have material from them is okay, well, number one, we're not talking about these little ships that are flying around in our atmosphere. Those aren't interstellar vessels. Those are local vessels. Those are for atmospheric and low Earth orbit use. Um, There are the things that go between the stars are going to be big honking motherships. And these are just the little local use craft it's like if you have it's it's basically the aircraft carrier model if if we're going to cross the sea to fight a war with japan we're going to send aircraft carriers but we're not going to we're not going to attack japan with the aircraft carrier we're going to attack it with the fighter planes that the aircraft carrier is carrying and the fighter planes are more nimble than the aircraft carrier, but they're also more fragile than the aircraft carrier. And in the same way, if you're going to if you've got a big honking mothership that you're going to send between stars, yeah, sure, it's going to need to be big. It's going to need to be tough. It's going to need to have lots of energy and fuel and all kinds of things like that. But that's not what you're going to fly around in to do your research on Earth. I mean, even Jacques Cousteau, when he would send the Calypso somewhere, they would send a diving bell down right. or something. And so um, so as a result, you're going to have these little bitty local use craft that, are, that aren't designed to cross interstellar difference, distances, and they're going to be fragile. And so compared to the mothership, at least. And um, and so that's uh, that's one factor that needs to be taken into consideration here. Another factor is they may not be designed to handle the environment that they're going to be in because we have electronic communication systems here and radar and other things that could mess with their systems. You know, it's like if you've ever been on an, on an aircraft, uh, they used to do this anyway. I don't know if they still do. Uh, they probably do in some circumstances, but you've got an unshielded Walkman 
to entertain yourself. And they'll come back and tell you, I'm sorry, your Walkman is interfering with our navigational system up in the cockpit. Turn it off. And I've had that happen to me uh, back in the early 2000s. And now we may have devices that are better shielded now that won't interfere with the aircraft's navigation equipment. But um, but we primitive humans may be using the bad unshielded devices that mess with alien uh, control systems. And that could be why the local fragile craft have crashed because our systems are messing with them. Another possibility is they their their psychology is different than ours. Um, we care as humans enormously about passenger safety. We're constantly doing what can we do to improve passenger safety? And our aircraft today are vastly safer than they were even back in the 1970s. Um, so maybe aliens just aren't like that. Maybe aliens don't care about passenger safety, and so they don't design for safety. And maybe what's what the what the local UFOs are carrying aren't even passengers. Maybe they're robots. Maybe these things are drones, and maybe a UFO is just a drone, and it doesn't have anybody on it, and consequently, it, it's not designed for safety because it's not carrying anybody. And therefore, it's, if it's not designed for safety, and even the even the grays, I mean, Grush said we've we've got a biological material. He he's been told we have biological material from one of these crashes. Well, maybe we do, and maybe it had a pilot, and maybe the pilot was a biological robot that nobody cared about. I mean, we're starting to build biological robots now. They're called xenobots, and we make them out of cells that we stitch together to do what we want. Well, maybe that's all grays are. Is just they're just biological robots, or you know, some other kind of robot that uh, that aren't considered the subject of human rights or whatever the alien equivalent of human rights is. They're not viewed as valuable. They're just biological machines that are being used, and you don't care whether they live or die. So you don't, and you've got a bazillion of them. You can manufacture them. So you 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 don't design for safety. Another possibility that I've heard proposed is maybe this is their way of helping us advance without overly disrupting our culture. Because one of the things we've learned from our own experience is when you have here on Earth a technologically advanced culture meet a primitive one, it doesn't go so well for the primitive culture. The technologically advanced culture, even without wanting to, is likely to overwhelm the primitive one. And so if the aliens have some kind of equivalent of the prime directive, they might want to help us along and help us eventually get to their level in a non-disruptive way where we're not just overwhelmed. Well, how might you do that? Well, if you want to give humans help to get up to their level, you but without disrupting human culture, you might want to do it in a kind of you, you definitely would want to do it in a kind of secretive way on the down low. You don't want to trumpet. Hey, we're here to help you here. Here are the blueprints for advanced technology because that's going to disrupt. And that's what you're trying to avoid. So what might you do? Well, you might let humans get hold of little bits of alien tech so they can reverse engineer it and figure it out for themselves 
in an or in a more organic way. It's going to take them time. They're, it's going to take decades, in fact, maybe even longer, depending on the tech they're letting us see. And so you might want to lose a few alien artifacts on Earth to the humans or, um, you know, let some of your technology crash. So there's an innocent explanation that humans understand because we understand crashing airplanes. They can see us crash airplanes. So it's like, oh, what if we did that? Well, then the humans would get some of our tech, not our best stuff, of course, but something better than what they've got. And then they could take a few decades and try to figure it out and slowly absorb the knowledge of it and us. And it'll be much less disruptive than if we just came down and gave them blueprints. So um, so I've seen that proposed as well. This may be a, a form of alien technology transfer that's designed to be non-disruptive and on the down low. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are multiple ways to undercut this, this kind of objection. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one difference between you and me is I, I think mm-hmm. I might think this objection is not as good even on its own terms i guess uh-huh. like it's worth noting that the people who build these things are probably not the same ones who fly them like mm-hmm. it's much easier to get trained to operate some machinery than it is to build the machinery and mm-hmm. you know uh, which at least in our case you know building technology is a group endeavor that takes many generations so uh, you can see how like over time this really advanced technology would accumulate um even in you know human civilization and then people who operate the technology might screw it up sometimes. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you have really advanced technology with imperfect operators. Um, like, you know, like this is a you know kind of standard um, response that I guess you don't think is as uh, convincing as I do. But, mm-hmm. you know, like we can imagine humans crashing advanced vehicles oh, sure. of years into the future. So. I can't build a car, but I sure can crash one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like an isolated tribe who saw us and was like, wow, look at all this crazy technology. And then we crash into a ditch or something because we're in, you know, unfamiliar terrain. Like you were saying, you know, if they're mm-hmm. flying around, there's all these weird signals in the air from our primitive technology but it's like you know we're driving around not on roads and we crash somewhere in the amazon they're like okay so they can they can build this range rover but then they just crash it in the ditch it's like yep (laughs) we we can in fact you can even think about storm chasers um you know who are driving around in 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 vehicles that they probably don't know how to build certainly not from the ground up they they're not car designers but they're going out doing dangerous stuff and and they they may get into accidents when they're chasing storms. Yeah, so um should we move on to the uh, distance objection? Sure. So alien visitations would require traversing vast regions of space faster than the speed of light since traveling the necessary distances without faster than light travel would require a prohibitively long time. But faster than light travel is impossible. So mm-hmm. therefore we're not being visited by aliens. Mm-hmm. So I was just writing a script. I for Mysterious World, I, I it's fully scripted as a show, and um, I was just writing a script that I think is the longest script I've ever written um, for an, an episode respond. And I believe this is going to come out in October, but it's uh, responding to a claim you sometimes hear in the Christian community that aliens and UFOs, it's all just demons. And um, and to I, I hear various people now, this is not the majority of you in the Christian community, but, <laughs> but some people will will say this and you'll see them online in comment boxes saying, oh, aliens are just demons. Well, OK, um, 
how do you know that? What's what's your argument? And I uh, got uh, I was finally able to find someone who was actually putting forth arguments in a sustained way to try to make that case. He he is a, a book called Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men by Hugh Ross, who is an evangelical astronomer, and Ken Samples, who's an evangelical apologist. And they have this book where they argue this in a sustained way. And so in my episode, I use that. It's like, great, I finally found a source of arguments I can interact with. And so I go through it and interact with their arguments. I conclude that their arguments... Despite the fact these guys are on the side of the angels, I conclude their arguments are quite poor. Mm-hmm. Um, but they make this exact argument. They say extraterrestrials cannot be visiting us because faster than light travel is impossible and slower than light travel is impractical. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is faster than light travel impossible? Not according to a lot of scientists. Um, it, what Einstein's um equations say is you cannot accelerate an object with mass up to the speed of light because it would require infinite energy but that doesn't mean there aren't loopholes that you could use to do this uh to travel faster than light in relative terms i mean one loophole if it's possible to jump to an, an area where the laws of physics are different, what you might call a parallel universe, if it's possible to do that, well, then that universe might allow faster than light travel, or it might, even though you have mass, or it might not map on to our universe in the same way. So you go five miles in the alternate universe and that turned and you jump back, you've gone five light years. That's actually how the faster than light travel on the TV show Babylon 5 works. Um, and there are a bunch of other loopholes, too. One of the th- one of the loopholes is based on the fact that it's even though objects with mass can't accelerate to the speed of light, there's no rule about space itself. In fact, the space is expanding in such a way that we have, um, you know, because of the Hubble, the Lemaitre-Hubble constant, um, where space expands at a certain rate per kiloparsec of space, um, the universe is big enough that there actually are parts of it that are accelerating. They're moving away from us now faster than the speed of light. The objects themselves are not moving relative to each other. There'll just be a galaxy out there and the galaxy is gravitationally bound to itself and it perceives itself as in an expanding universe. But when you look at the distance between us and it, if if space expands at, let's say, 70 kilometers per kiloparsec, there are so many kiloparsecs between us and it that effectively we're moving away from each other faster than the speed of light. And every year, as a result, stars fall over what's called the cosmic horizon because they're moving away from us so fast that now light cannot, can never get back to us from them. And every year, more and more stars fall over the cosmic horizon because of precisely this effect. So there actually is something happening in the universe where um, you have objects moving faster than the speed of light relative to each other. 
The question would be then, can you find a way to use this effect to give you practical faster than light travel? Well, back in the 1990s, just as Star Trek The Next Generation was ending, Mexican physicist and Star Trek fan Miguel Alcubierre started thinking about warp drive. It's like, how could so warp drive, it involves warping space. Is there a way consistent with Einstein's uh, general theory of relativity that would allow us to, to do that, to warp space in such a way that we can effectively go faster than the speed of light? And he concluded, yes. And he designed what's now known as the Alcubierre warp drive. What it does is it shrinks space because space is is malleable. It's 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 bendable, for example, by gravitational fields and by acceleration and so forth. That's all general relativity. Well, um, what if you you've got a ship and the ship is sitting still? Okay, it's in this patch of space. Ship is just sitting still in the middle of this patch of space, but it's got a warp drive. And so it reaches out its warp drive in front of the ship and shrinks the space in front of it Mm. while and then counterbalances that by expanding the space behind it. So it's doing two warp effects. It's shrinking in front and expanding behind. What that's going to have the effect of doing in relative terms is going to take the patch of space the ship is sitting in and accelerate it towards its destination And it can do that faster than light because there's no limit on how fast space can or cannot expand. And not that we know about anyway. And so he's designed a warp drive and other other physicists have looked at this and say, yeah, it doesn't violate any laws of physics. Now, there are and his is not the only such design. Now, there are problems that remain to be solved, and some of them actually have been solved. So we don't yet have a um, a faster-than-light drive. It would be cool if we did, but we don't. Uh, but this has gotten a lot more respect in the last few decades from actual physicists than when a lot of people's opinions are were kind of formed. And so you have a lot of physicists today saying, you know, there this probably can be done, or at least we should take it seriously that faster than light could be done. Um, in his book, The Physics of the Impossible, uh, physicist Michio Kaku, who's quite well known, um, has a whole chapter on how to how we how we could possibly go faster than light. Sabina Hassenfelder, a German theoretical physicist, says she thinks both communication and faster than light is possible and that's probably why aliens haven't contacted us because we haven't figured out how to do it. We're boring. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the Vulcans didn't want to contact us until we figured out warp drive in 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 uh, Star Trek first contact. Mm-hmm. So the first problem with the distance objection is actually this may be possible after all. We've got theories that would allow it, and they're working on trying to solve the practical problems. What about slower than light travel? Mm-hmm. So Hugh, Hugh Ross's argument was it's impractical. And his argument was based on a couple of premises. One of them was that uh, aliens wouldn't be up for doing generational ships, and you couldn't get up to the fraction of the speed of light you would need to have serious time dilation to traverse between stars in a single lifetime, you couldn't get up to that fraction of the speed of light given the fuel costs 
and so forth, how much fuel you'd have to bring and how much it would weigh and stuff like that. Okay, so multiple problems here. First one, he's depending on human psychology. He's assuming humans wouldn't be up for a multi-generation mission. Well, even if he's right about that, who says aliens think anything like us? They might be totally fine with a multi-generation mission. They may be extreme ideologues, and their their ancestors who set us on this mission, by gum, we're going to fulfill that mission and scope out that planet they spotted by telescopes. Um, Even if it takes generations to do it, they may be up for that. Another problem, who says aliens have lifespans that are like ours? Right. Maybe they naturally live for thousands of years, or maybe they've cracked the problem of aging, which we're working on now, and live for dramatically longer times. I was reading a story, um, uh, I believe I I saw it on Real Real Clear Science, which is one of the science... um, aggregators that I check regularly, um, where one uh, gerontologist was speculating that once we crack the problem of aging with, you know, regenerative DNA technology and so forth, we'll be able to live for up to 20,000 years. Well, okay. Could you get between star systems in 20,000 years if you're going an appreciable fraction of the speed of light? Sure you could. So they may they just may not perceive time the way we do. They may not, they may not have limited little lifespans that they feel they've got to race through. They may be have have thousands of year lifespans. They may be functionally immortal and and perfectly happy taking their time to do stuff. Yet another problem. Why do you got to be awake through the whole thing? Right. What if you what if you hibernate? We're working. Uh, we have creatures that hibernate here on Earth, like bears, for example. We're working on human hibernation right now. So even if you can't get between stars in a human lifetime, maybe you can slow down the human biological processes enough that you can get there over time. And maybe you maybe maybe you could find a way to make cryonics work or maybe you could do things that transhumanists are talking about like uploading your your um your memories and your personality to a cloud and then once you get to your location you download you just store the person's memories and personality on a computer drive and then when it gets to the location you download it into a new robotic body or new biological body that you've made for it or maybe you just send robots or biological robots to do what you want and maybe you if they're biological maybe you grow them when the ship gets there so there are all kinds of ways that you could get between star systems with slower than light and not be constrained by human biological lifespans or human psychology so I don't think the distance um, objection works for either from either the uh, Christian-oriented aliens or demons perspective or from the skeptical aliens can't get here perspective. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not necessarily required faster than light travel. And, you know, we just shouldn't be too quick to say what's impossible. I mean, like I I remembered uh, just now that I, I can't remember his name, but there was some physicist or some engineer who was talking about you know, very confidently how, you know, there could never be a nuclear bomb. Like mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's impossible. It couldn't yeah. work. And then like the next day or something, the bomb was dropped on Japan. And, and similarly, there were people who said, you you're never going to have, um, you're never going to have heavier than night 
heavier than air flight. Mm. And then the Wright brothers happened. And then there were people who said, you're never going to be able to have trains that go faster than 40 miles an hour because people will suffocate. <laughs> and OK, we got trains that go a lot faster than 70 than 40 miles an hour now. And if you think about what we could do, I mean, our, our given our present state of knowledge, we can do a lot, but imagine what we could do in 10,000 or 100,000 or a million years of further development. We can't really confidently say very many things are absolutely impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we can, at most, we can work out the implications of certain theories, but even then there are loopholes like you're talking about with, um, with like general relativity. Like it's not all quite as cut and dried as it might seem at first glance. Um, but shall we uh, move on sure. to the geography objection? Okay. Um, why are alien abductions and UFO sightings geographically concentrated in the U.S.? You know, doesn't that seem that they're, doesn't that seem to indicate that they're best explained psychologically and culturally? Okay. Um, why are the number of places from which nuclear weapons have been launched concentrated in the United States and a few other countries. Why don't we find them evenly distributed throughout the world? Um, well, it's because some people built them. Now, in terms of this objection, actually, there's a danger of overestimating because there are UFO sightings all over the world. We have a lot of them here in the United States, but we have a few unique things in the United States that could explain them. One of them, other than them just being a delusion, one of them is we've got a lot better communications technology here than in other places. Uh, if you go to outer Mongolia, okay, these days, maybe you could put it on Facebook, but historically that has not been the case. And whereas here in the developed world, we have better uh, communication reporting abilities. So this could be a reporting issue, but then there are other things. Maybe, maybe the aliens are interested in the technolo technologically advanced countries more because we're the ones with the nukes. And so um, there has been indications in the UFO reporting literature that that UAPs are interested in our nuclear plants and in our nuclear weapons facilities and nukes, even though they're kind of primitive from one point of view, they're very powerful. And I could easily see, say, if I'm an alien saying, hey, there are these new kids on the block a few light years from here, and um, we've just seen nuclear explosions in their atmosphere. Do we want to wait until they get here before we start scoping this out? <laughs> I can imagine because it, 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 once you've got nukes, you can do a lot of damage to somebody. And so I could see it being the our, our release of nuclear weapons in 1945 being the thing that attracted alien attention. And they may be they may have come here as a result and they may be riveted on who's got the nukes and the other advanced tech that we might one day need to worry about. So I even if it's true that there that there are, there's more alien activity in the United States and the developed world than in other places, and that's not just a reporting artifact. I think that it's easily explainable by aliens are interested in the people who have the most tech. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why I said I like this objection, because mm -hmm. it's it's kind of like 
it's issued like most of these objections very confidently, very definitely. And it's like, okay, well, I mean, first of all, they're not really geographically concentrated in the U.S. like by some Mm -hmm. metrics, but let's just stipulate that they are. Okay, well, that's not actually that weird, you know, that they would be uh, concentrated in the more technologically advanced um, countries. But, you know, if you just think about it for a second, like, okay, you're in a, you know, a relatively underdeveloped country and you see a UFO. Now what? Like, who do you tell? Whoever asks you, like, where where do you talk about? Like, how, how would that data ever be gathered? So, yeah. you know, it is very plausibly a reporting artifact. Yeah, and there's also another aspect to this, which is the critic on this point, even though it's a fair point to raise, the critic is actually not well-informed about UFO literature and what UFO programs are happening in other countries, because there are lots of, like, South American UFO sightings, and the governments down there have had UFO study programs, and... um, and you, the same thing is true in you have a lot UFO reports in China and Russia, and you've got a lot of more UFO activity and reports elsewhere in the world than the critic is typically aware of, including programs to study them. Yeah. I mean, where do you think this do you think it is uh, just a, a reporting artifact that creates this uh, like uh, perception on the part of skeptics? Because I've heard this from a lot of skeptics where they're like, yeah, they're concentrated in the U.S. by like a lot. Yeah, I think that it's I think that um, there's sort of two reporting problems. The first the lower level reporting problem is how many sightings get put into a database that is in the local country. So like you're down in, on, in you know, traveling around, riding your, your, your caballero, you're riding your horse around the Pampas grass in Argentina at, down at Fin del Mundo at the end of the world, as they call it. Mm-hmm. And you see a UFO. Do you get it reported? You're just a, you're just a rural cowboy. Do you report it to an Argentinian database? Well, that's our first reporting issue. And locals in various places may not know how to report it and may not choose to report it. But then there's a second reporting problem, which is supposing it gets in the Argentinian database, does it then get communicated across the language barrier and become something that the critic here in America knows about? Or is, so that's our second reporting issue. And I think a lot of critics, they tend not to look at the data, actually. They tend to, and to be frank, they tend to pontificate and not really examine the literature to see what's happening. Sometimes they proudly will even say, oh, I would never look at that stuff. Well, okay, then who's to blame for you not knowing about this? Um, there's also another phenomenon because I mentioned the language barrier. You know, there's a joke in linguistics. Emerson, what do you call a person who speaks three languages? Uh, multilingual? Trilingual, specifically. Um, what do you call a person who speaks two languages? Bilingual. Bilingual, yes. And what do you call a person who speaks one language? Yes, that's right. An American. <laughs> 
And so a lot of Americans is because we're we've got this big self-sufficient country. Mm -hmm. We're not really that aware of the rest of the world. And a lot of American critics have never looked at the literature. Why would I read a UFO book? And um, and they're just aware of kind of the American bubble. And so they assume that that things are disproportionate here when they've never actually looked into how common are they elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, skeptic. This is one of my hobby horses with the skeptic community is that they, in my experience, rarely uh, know what the beliefs are. Like they know that people believe in UFOs, or you know, they think we might be uh, visited by aliens or something, but they don't really know anything beyond that. Mm-hmm. They're not really aware of what people believe, and further, they're not aware of why they believe it. Um, but anyway, I, I've just found that over and over again with the few topics, you know, the small handful of topics that I that I know a lot about when I go to the skeptical resources, I find more often than not, they are actually not reliable sources of information about yeah. what other people believe and why. Mm-hmm. And there's there's an that's true. I, I want to be fair to to the skeptical literature because the same thing is true to a significant extent of other people as well. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows their own tribe and understands their own tribe's belief. And that's usually why you want to go to primary sources to find out what people believe rather than listening to secondary sources. Because if someone's talking about those other people over there and this is what they believe, the the, the reliability level tends to drop off. Yeah. And so um, so, you know, just like just with, say, the Christian atheist, you know, tribes, atheists know what atheists believe. Christians know what Christians believe. But a lot of atheists don't really know what a lot of Christians believe. They tend to have caricatures and a lot of Christians don't really know what atheists believe. They tend to have a lot of caricatures. So um, the same thing is true when it comes to the UFO community and other communities. Yeah. I mean, the reason that it it bothers me more with the skeptic community, because I, you know, it's been pointed out to me before when I've said that kind of thing. Oh, well, isn't that more of a human problem than like a skeptic problem that and I'm like, yeah, to some extent. But most people don't present themselves as like the ultimate epistemic authorities. Yeah. <laughs> like they are the rational adults in the room who have like figured out what's true and sorted through it all. I'm saying like that's why they bother me particularly. And I, I have to say that that's a fair criticism. Um, I mean, I try to be as balanced as I can, but this is one where I I have to say you're right. There is a disproportionate lack of awareness in the skeptical community because skeptics tend to be very confident of their own position to the point that they don't research other positions. Uh, To just give an illustration of that that's outside the UFO field, there was a paper that came out just a few years ago uh, dealing with parapsychology. And in the paper, the uh, skeptics who wrote the paper, and there are open-minded skeptics in that deal with parapsychology. These two authors were not, and they 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 said, "Well, this is just all impossible 
parapsychological phenomena like psychic functioning. It's just impossible. And therefore, we didn't even bother reading any parapsychological literature to see what the evidence is because the evidence can't be right. Okay, that's not a scientific attitude. Mm-hmm. If, 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 if that's a dogmatic attitude, and if people had taken that dogmatic attitude, say, a thousand years ago, we would not have the atomic theory of matter now mm-hmm. because the dominant viewpoint in in science was the um, was the the four classical elements and atomism was viewed as this fringe crazy idea that's not how matter works and if you just said well everybody knows that the laws of physics are there are only these four elements or five if you want to count ether because we've only got these elements atoms don't exist they're just a mathematical trick for keeping you know count of certain things um, but they can't really exist because we know how matter works well then you would lose out on the atomic theory of matter and the scientific perspective is even if you have a strongly held belief, whether that strongly held belief is there's only four or five elements or whether that strongly held belief is psychic functioning doesn't exist, you always want to look at the data Mm -hmm. and you don't say, because maybe your previously strongly held belief needs modification. And if you're not looking at the data, if you're just dismissing it as and indignantly sometimes saying, of course, I would never look at that. You're not acting as a scientist. You're acting as a dogmatician. Mm-hmm. And and the same thing is true in um, uh, in in the skeptical community when it comes to UFOs. Having said that, I think that because I always want to be fair, the same thing is true to a degree in the Christian community. Because there will be Christians who, who say, oh, I know the Bible says this, but and, 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 and now Christianity and evolution are not at each other's throats. Uh, Darwin himself was a Christian, um, and there are loads of Christians since who, who have no problem with evolution. I happen to be one of them. Uh, but there are Christians who think that they're incompatible, and those Christians also can be so confident of their beliefs that they're not willing to look at evidence. It's like, why should I look at uh, genetic evidence for evolution? I, God's word says this, and, and that's good enough for me. His word is reliable. Science is not reliable. Therefore, I don't even need to look at genetic data regarding uh, regarding evolution. So you do have parallels, but I, w- I would agree with you that there is um, a tendency in many circles in the skeptical community to be overconfident of their views and and not properly research them. Yeah. I I mean, I guess one major area where I differ with them is that I think a lot of these things, you know, like the topics you deal with on your podcast, that these things warrant investigation. Like we just, we don't know ahead of time what the answer is or like how the world is going to turn out. You know, like even if you have a very high credence in something like the standard model or something, you know, Sean Carroll kind of makes this, you know, a priori is the wrong word to use exactly, but he he doesn't bother looking into parapsychological or paranormal phenomena because he thinks that it's incompatible with, you know, the core theory. And he's like, so I mean, I already know that it's wrong ahead of time. And um, some people have pointed out that his argument is actually, um, even if you accept that the core theory is like a pretty good description of the everyday world, the argument still doesn't really work. But, you know, I I just hate that kind of attitude that says, well, you know, I've got a high credence in the core theory or 
I have a perfect interpretation of the Bible or something. So mm-hmm. I don't need to even investigate these things because I know ahead of time what the answer is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't share that attitude. And even if you did know in advance what the answer is going to be, and even if you're right about that, you could learn something in the process. <laughs> Um, uh, moving along here mm-hmm. to a, a very closely related objection, um, yeah. to ge- ge- geographic concentration. Um, why are alien abductions and UFO sightings temporally concentrated in the present day? Doesn't that seem to indicate that they are best explained psychologically or culturally? Okay. Um, I think there are several responses that a UFO believer could make here. The first one is who says they are? They've been going on for thousands of years. Aliens even had a hand in designing us. We're artificial, partially artificial creatures due to guided evolution with aliens messing with our gene line tens of thousands of years ago. Now, not all UFO believers believe that, but that is the ancient aliens hypothesis and that ancient aliens had an impact on our development as a species that is out there in the UFO community. So so one one option is they're not concentrated today. We may have a reporting artifact that makes it look that way because now we have we have many more records from the 20th century than any prior century. And so it may be a result of that. Um you know, you could say why are um why are reports of the common cold clustered in the 20th century as opposed to 5,000 years ago. Well, 5,000 years ago, pretty sure the common cold existed, but they didn't, we don't have a lot of records from 5,000 years ago. That was right after writing had been invented. And they didn't tend to, if Pharaoh got a cold, they didn't tend to put that up on the walls in the temple at Karnak. So, um, so they just weren't keeping records of this kind of thing back then that have survived. And, and so, um, but one position is going to be that they, they're not concentrated today. They have been here all the way down through human history. Another, uh, but suppose that's not the case. Suppose the UFO sightings are genuinely recent and we shouldn't read UFOs back into every ancient source that, describe something vaguely similar to them. Um, What if what if all the reports are recent? Huh. Have there been any things humans have done recently that might attract alien attention, like setting off nukes in our atmosphere? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So maybe the reason that the reports are clustered recently is because the aliens have only recently taken an interest in us because we've only recently become interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, whether they view us as a potential threat or competitor one day or whatever it is. You know, as long as we were a bunch of primitive cave people, they might have had a mild curiosity about us, but not enough to mount an interstellar expedition. But once we start setting off nukes and developing space flight, they might consider us a little more worthy of investigation. And that's why we have more reports of this now. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, could you say something about some of those older uh, reports that like sometimes it's mentioned, you know, like Ezekiel or, or you know, uh, oh, other yeah. ancient sources like, you know, it's, it's one option is saying, well, look, they're not temporally concentrated in the present day. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like you said, suppose they are. Well, there have been interesting technological advancements that might um, explain that. But, you know, what are some of the uh, some, some of the evidence that's cited 
that says like, oh, well, maybe ancient people thought about UFOs too. Well, I have to say that I think the evidence is genuine, is is actually not good for mm-hmm. the ancient aliens hypothesis. Um, one of the one of the reasons is when you start looking at the evidence that gets cited over and over again, it tends to be distorted in some way. Um, for example, when you people will cite the book of Ezekiel, and they'll they'll note that. Um, that uh, Ezekiel describes a wheel within a wheel and say, oh, that's a UFO. It's like a flying saucer. Flying saucers look like wheels. Yeah, except that's not really what um, Ezekiel's talking about. One of the most plausible understandings is it's not a wheel inside of a wheel, which is, you know, a little like concentric circles. It's a wheel intersecting a wheel like the roller on the bottom of a chair. And in fact, um, if you look at the literary context, what Ezekiel is doing in this passage is he's describing God's throne. He's not describing a UFO. He's describing a chariot throne for God. And we actually know what chariot thrones look like because we've got bas-relief from other cultures that show kings and gods sitting on chariot thrones. And they don't look at all like UFOs. This is what Ezekiel is doing. Um, And this passage in Ezekiel, or actually a couple of passages, gives rise to a major trend in Jewish mysticism in later centuries known as the the Merkava tradition, that this is the word for God's throne, which is also depicted as being a chariot. And um, and so we actually know what Ezekiel is talking about. We even have pictures from that archaeologists have uncovered of this kind of construct. It's like both a chariot and a throne. And so we know what's being talked about here, and it's not UFOs. So this is someone coming across the text who has a background in UFOs, but not a background in biblical literature or ancient Near Eastern archaeology, misunderstanding the text. Same thing happens with other people. Um, You have, for example, there was a guy named Zechariah Sitchin who in the 1970s started proposing that there's a what he called the 12th planet. He just means a planet beyond Pluto. Uh, and yes, Pluto is a planet because it's big enough to be round and it's not big enough to glow. And that means it's a planet. Thanks, that Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, that is that is the natural definition of you got it's big enough to be round. It's not big enough to glow. It's a planet. And yes, that includes our sister planet, the moon. Mm. Having said that, <laughs> um, so Zechariah Sitchin build himself as an expert in ancient Mesopotamian languages. And he claimed to have uh, just translated various ancient uh, Sumerian and Babylonian texts that indicate there's this extra planet in our solar system on a highly elliptical orbit that takes like 12,000 years to swoop into the inner solar system. Um, He called the planet Nibiru. He said it was inhabited by a group of, by a race of people called the um, Anunnaki and that they, uh, you know, kind of came down to earth and messed with our genome and wanted to turn us into gold slaves to dig gold for them and stuff like that. Okay, so Zechariah Sitchin claims this, and he's got a few, you know, illustrations from ancient Near Eastern archaeology and and so forth, and some clay tablets. And here's the thing: he was a total fraud. 
He didn't speak any of these languages that he claimed to. He made up the mm. translations, and he got a bunch of people who also were not speakers of these languages to believe him. Mm-hmm. You Similarly, you look at Eric von Daniken, who uh, kicked off the ancient astronaut ancient astronauts craze in the 1970s with his book chariots of the gods um he would like do things like go down look at the nazca lines and down in peru which are these shapes you know on the desert floor and and say oh these shapes can only be seen from the air and that means they were built for aliens and look at this here this is like probably a ufo landing strip okay Problem number one, uh, Nova, the science documentary show, uh, did a an expose of Chariots of the Gods, um, and there was a book associated with it called Crash Go the Chariots. But I remember in the Nova documentary, they're showing you the picture from Zechariah Sitchin's book of his proposed alien landing strip in among the among the uh, Nazca lines. And then they show you a person walking down it because this thing is like 18 inches wide (laughs) unless it unless the aliens are tiny. This is not a UFO landing strip. This is something that is designed for some other purpose. What might that be? Uh, Well, let's suppose for a moment it can only be seen by um, by someone up in the air. Okay, Uh, if you're a primitive person. And do you want to, is there anyone you conceptualize as being up in the air that you might want to send a message to? Maybe, you know, a a prayer or something. Mm -hmm. If you conceptualize some of your deities as being up in the air, and that's one of the three places deities tend to be conceptualized. You either have chthonic deities underground, you've got aquatic deities in in the water, or you've got celestial deities up in the sky. And if you conceive of some of your deities as up in the sky, you might want to make things for them to look at to honor them and send messages to them, like... We're in a desert. Please send rain occasionally. (laughs) Um, And then the fact this is a valley. So you know what that means? There are mountains on both sides of it. And people up in the mountains can look down in the valley and see the patterns, too. (laughs) So the evidence that this has anything to do with aliens is extraordinarily tenuous at best. And that tends to be true of all of the evidence that's cited for ancient aliens. Interesting. So, so do you agree then that the sightings are kind of temporally concentrated in the present day? I, I think they are. Now, I wouldn't say they're all necessarily from the 20th century. Uh, I would be open to that possibility, but I would want to hold open because I haven't done a ton. I know there have been discussions of the possibility of extraterrestrial life in prior centuries, even prior to the 19th oh, century. Yeah. Um, I would want to go back and review the literature and see if we can find any credible accounts of actually meeting um, such individuals. Um, but uh, I, I would tend to agree personally that I think the sighting reports and abduction reports and so forth are, are, tend to be recent. Yeah. In fact, I have a pair of episodes coming out. Uh, I want to say it's later in August. It might be in September. But I've got a pair of episodes coming out on the um, 1896-1897 uh, mystery airships. This was uh, the for, in the latter few months of 1896 and the first half of 1897. 
here in America, there were these reports of airships showing up that uh, they were sometimes called mystery airships. They're sometimes called phantom airships or ghost airships. And a lot of people in the UFO community look back on them and say, oh, it was a wave of UFO sightings. And maybe that was the first time that aliens made contact. Yeah, well, okay. I look at the evidence and no. These this these there there is basically zero evidence that those would be considered UFOs. Um those were regarded as being by the people at the time as these are just human inventors working on dirigibles. And and they actually talked to the crews a bunch. And the crews said things like yeah, I'm working with some inventors from New York and California, and we're testing our dirigibles right now. And so I think the mystery airships is a really interesting, fun story. Uh, but the evidence is it has nothing to do with UFOs. I see. Um, yeah, I, I was listening to this podcast called Philosophy on the Fringes, and they were uh -huh. talking about... Um, aliens and kind of ancient philosophy like i guess ancient greeks were talking about aliens not about like seeing ufos or meeting them but just mm -hmm. talking about life elsewhere in the universe oh yeah sure yeah. The, the one of the earliest uh it's sometimes credited as the earliest science fiction story it's called true history um and or depending on how you translate it but it's like true history or a true story and and it's great you got these human sailors here on earth and they kind of use a water spout to get up to our sister planet the moon and they meet our, our our they meet these weird people on the moon and they're having a war with the sun and they mm. they they get involved and they get on these steeds that can fly through space and they they help out in the war and and uh i think there are giant spiders up there too and on one of the planets and i think they go to venus and it's a lot of fun but it's not reporting this as real in fact that's part of the joke is it's called a true history or a yeah. true story when it's obviously made up <laughs> um so uh Let's move on to the motivation objection. Okay. Um, this one is more like a, you know, and I think the people might be able to guess uh, at least something that we're going to say about this one based on previous answers. But the objection goes something like, why would these, you know, advanced aliens come all the way here just to do the things that it's often alleged they do, like abduct people or mutilate cattle or make crop circles? Yeah. So, well, one of the things, I, there are several things to be said here. Um the first one is what are they actually doing? Um, it, it, it's understandable that they would want to study us, you know, if we if we're a potential either for just anthropological reasons, they might want to study us or and our planet. Um, so just for purely scientific interest, they might want to do that or. If we're if they perceive us as a potential competitor or threat one day, they would also want to study us. And that could include more than just us. It could include other things like, oh, let's study their crops and let's study their livestock, you know, Um and it's possible that given that if they don't think like, and of course, let's study them too, biologically. Um, so they might abduct uh, humans, they might dissect cows, and they might mess with fields of 
crops, you know, they might do all those things. And especially if they don't think like us, if their psychology is different, it might seem a little, what they're doing might seem a little weird. So all those are possible. Um, But are they really doing those things? Um, The, okay, so human abduction, I'm open to that happening. But I suspect it is really, if it it happens at all, I suspect it's extremely exaggerated. And so I, I, a lot of the, I I did a, for example, a, um, a pair of episodes on the Betty and Barney Hill encounter that kind of kicked off the abduction craze in the, in the popular literature. It's not, not actually the first reported abduction, uh, but it is the first one that became popular here in America. It occurred back in the 1960s and to this couple from New Hampshire named Betty and Barney Hill. And um, then by the 1980s and 90s, you had all these abduction reports. Well, okay. Um, how good is the evidence for the Betty and Barney Hill one? Because these days it's easy to say you're, you've heard abduction stories. And so that's, what's influencing what you perceived happened to you. Maybe for example, you have sleep paralysis, which is a real thing. I've even had a few instances of sleep paralysis myself, where what happens is you wake up, but your body's motor control doesn't immediately turn on. And so you wake up and you feel paralyzed and feeling paralyzed is not a fun thing. It's like you're trying to move and you can't. And people who are experiencing sleep paralysis frequently perceive a sinister presence. Now, in my case, when I've had, I've only had a handful of these, and it's been years since I had one. But um, but when I had a sleep paralysis, I didn't think aliens, but I wondered, are there intruders in my home? Am I perceiving intruders down in the hallway leading to my bedroom? Yeah, and just human intruders. And um, but let's say you got someone who's read a lot of alien abduction accounts, and they take them seriously, and then they wake up and they've got sleep paralysis. They might think, I can't move my body because the aliens are doing this. And so then they go to, they they have this happen to them a few times. They think, I'm a serial abductee, but I can't really remember much about it. I should go get hypnotized. Well, the thing is about hypnosis, it is not a magic memory enhancer. Mm-hmm. It is, it actually promotes confabulation. Because what you do is you relax and you're given permission to engage in a fantasy and then often with leading questions by the hypnotist. And then you're told to regard this fantasy as an actual memory. But when you check out um, the information that comes out under hypnosis, it, it is not super accurate. It's anything but that. Um, and this has been shown in a variety of contexts, including legal contexts, which is why hypnotic evidence is not admitted in court cases. Um, it also, in the parapsychological community, you know, you may hear have a lot of books which people have written saying, oh, I got regressed and hypnotized into this past life. Actual parapsychologists don't really use hypnotic evidence in reincarnation research because it doesn't turn up anything that's verifiable. You know, and if it does, it's usually because someone read a book about the time period they're thinking they reincarnated from. So uh, among outside of the UFO community, hypnosis is not regarded as being a reliable tool for retrieving 
hidden memories and but in the U, in the ufo community it is and so you have your sleep paralysis you're wondering where aliens messing with you you go get hypnotized the hypnotist asks you questions about where did aliens come to your room and you visualize aliens come into your room and you think that's a memory and so all of this current stuff all these current alien abduction reports I think are very easily influenced by the early ones, like the Betty and Barney Hill one. So what happened in Betty and Barney Hill's case? Well, they were driving back from a vacation in Canada. It was late at night. They saw a few strange things that actually do have natural explanations. Then when they get home, Betty starts having dreams about an alien abduction. They also had been watching a science fiction show called The Outer Limits that had an alien in it that looked like the ones they reported. Barney does not remember any of the things that are coming to Betty in her dreams. Well, okay, then they both go and they both get hypnotized. And lo and behold, they have this elaborate story about this alien abduction. And the hypnotist's conclusion was, well, they're sincere, but... Um, Barney's getting all this from Betty, and Betty's getting it from her dreams. And dreams also are not really that great as a memory booster of things that really happened. You probably don't want to rely on things that you had happen to you in dreams as something that happened in the real world. So I'm quite open to the hypothesis that the entire alien abduction phenomenon may not be real. It may all just be um, misunderstandings and hoaxes and confabulation and things like that. What about crop circles? Well, we know a bunch of them were hoaxed because you can even go on YouTube and watch crop circle hoax demonstrations. (laughs) And um, so and really the crop circle phenomenon is kind of an outgrowth of what something that is is better sourced. In UFO literature, Um, back in the 60s and 70s, there would be occasional uh, they're called trace cases, but they're uh, J. Allen Hynek would classify them as close encounters of the second kind, which is where you see an you see a UFO, you see it close enough that you can see some detail. He typically estimated this is like 500 feet or less. And it interacts with its environment in some way. So there were some UFO reports where they would like, after the UFO took off, they would find grass that had been swirled or something like that or squashed in a circular pattern. Okay, so that's interesting. And you know, give consideration to that. Maybe maybe those are real. But then in the 80s, these things started to become increasingly elaborate and 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 that's really what crop circles are. They didn't even call the early trace cases. They didn't call those crop circles. Those were sometimes called saucer nests. They were called trace cases, but they weren't these elaborate things we see today. So if you're talking about the elaborate things we see today, I think there's a good argument they're all hoaxes. What about cattle mutilation? Okay, cattle mutilation. Well, could aliens be doing it? Sure. Does it need to be aliens? Well, no. <laughs> yeah. Are there possible natural explanations that aren't exotic at all, like predation and disease and things like that? Well, maybe. Okay, maybe that's doing it. 
uh, cults, cult activity has also been proposed. So has government testing. Because in the 1950s and so forth, we set off lots of nukes in the western part of the country in our atmosphere. And we've had other covert military research like nerve toxin testing and things like that. And there have even been cases where we've done covert things on humans as part of our experimenting, like the Tuskegee Airmen. And so if we've done covert, nasty experiments on humans, would our, if our government has done that, would our government do that to some animals? Would they maybe release a, I don't know, biological agent in in some farmland and then go check the cattle mm-hmm. that got it? Or would they release a nerve agent or would they be checking for fallout and seeing what's happened? So there are possible. So I think there are a number of possibilities. I mean, there are clearly dead cows. Mm-hmm. The question is, what causes the dead cows and, and the way they're found? Well, Maybe it's just predation. Maybe it's um, maybe it's humans who are doing it, including our own government. And I don't know, maybe it's aliens. But I, I would tend to I tend to only resort to exotic explanations if the conventional explanations fail. And thus far, to my mind, the conventional explanations on cattle mutilation have not failed. So. I think with all three of those, cattle mutilations, crop circles, and alien abductions, all of them could be could have no involvement at all by aliens. So they might, even though there are reasons why aliens might come here and do stuff like that, especially if they don't think like we do, I don't know that they are coming here and doing that. They right. might be coming here and just flying around doing aerial surveys of us. Um, so I don't think the motivation objection is um, is a disproof of the idea that aliens are here and checking us out in some way. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess just to uh, to mm-hmm. try to uh, steel man the objection further, yeah. like, you know, OK, let's say we, we go along with with what you're saying about those three examples I gave. But mm-hmm. I feel like the skeptic at this point would just say, yeah, yeah. But why are they coming here and doing anything like just fill in the blank with whatever you mm-hmm. think they're doing? And, you know, it's, humans have bombs in space flight. <laughs> Want to check that out before they get much further. Yeah. No, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I can imagine motivations. But, you know, like we've like we've mentioned a few times, like a, a different kind of organism that evolved somewhere else is going to have, you know, different psychological attributes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, some of the things they do might be uh, unrelatable, you know, mm-hmm. but, yeah, um, I, you know, even just granting, you know, because I, I do agree with with everything you've said about this objection. But even just granting like, OK, no, they are doing all that stuff. It's like. Okay. Well, still, I mean, I still don't quite get the force of the objection because for Mm -hmm. one, scientists do all sorts of bizarre things all the Mm -hmm. time. And, you know, out of curiosity, which often includes studying uh, humans and other organisms. And as a species, we've dedicated a lot of time and attention to that. 
And secondly, I don't even understand. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. If if you're a lizard in a rainforest out in South America and these scientists come and catch you and start studying you, it's like, what is this? Why are they doing this? Well, because we have this science got to study everything ideology. Maybe the aliens have some ideology that's like that and says they got to go study everything. And, you know, if it's if it's alive, we want to go got to go study it. That's our ideology. Or maybe they want to convert us. They're just waiting till we learn enough about them to give us their religious ideology or their or their um, economic ideology or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. You're just a wolf being tagged and you're just like, what are you what are you doing? It's yeah. Like, I mean, the thing is, like scientists, like they engage in all kinds of activities that you wouldn't understand without knowledge of that specific subject. It's like walking into the middle of a conversation or something. So, like, for example, um, something that came to mind when I was reflecting on this, I remembered um, Sarah Palin kind of getting a lot of people or, you know, getting a lot of people mad at her because she uh, said something about like, oh, there's all this government waste, all this like, you know, senseless spending. And one example she gave, she was like, there are millions of dollars being allocated to studying fruit flies. Fruit flies, can you believe? Like, it's so stupid. And um, she's like, I kid you not, fruit flies. And, you know, like it was pointed out that these are absolutely critical to basic research in genetics. Um, I just have a quote from Adam Rutherford to explain that. With only four chromosomes, but having a version of something like 75% of disease-causing human genes, the fruit fly is arguably on par with the mouse as the founding model organism for the field of genetics. End quote. So... You know, I know it's and, amazing that fruit flies only have four chromosomes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're perfect for genetics research. And we can't just walk into the middle of a scientific research program and expect to know exactly what's going on. Like, you know, I mean, the, the sentiment, I'm sorry, you're spending millions of dollars researching fruit flies. Like, that is a perfectly reasonable sentiment if you don't know anything about basic research in genetics. But for someone who does know, that's like a painfully stupid comment, you know, so it's like it's just never this whole like motivation objection just never had any force for me. If they're at all, you know, curious or investigate or doing anything resembling science, then, of course, some of their behavior would seem very odd from our perspective. It presupposes that you know their cognitive state, both in terms of information content and psycho and psycho psychological principles that they think like us and they have the same information that we do. But in fact, we don't know what their psychology is like or what information they have. And therefore, we're not in a position to judge whether it's rational for them to want to come here and, and have some kind of contact with us. Right. And, you know, they're, they're not monolithic, just like humans aren't, you know, like there was like I just gave an example of one human who thought researching fruit flies was crazy, you know, a crazy waste of money. And then a bunch of other humans who thought that was a crazy thing to say. <laughs> so, I mean, like, but um, or maybe they are monolithic. Maybe they're the Borg. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I mean, we just we we couldn't really say much about alien psychology you know i mean like their behavior might be unrelatable to us on a deeper level and not just because we're walking into the middle of a scientific yeah. research project there are now i have a little bit of sympathy with um and only a little bit with the idea that we could figure certain things out based on uh, concerning their psychology mm -hmm. one of the things it, because there are certain evolutionary principles that are going to be true um you know that you can kind of deduce like for example um if they're coming here they're intelligent 
Oh, yeah. They they build craft. Okay, so what kind of organisms develop intelligence? Well, those have that that don't have other survival strategies. The organisms that tend to develop intelligence are those that use it as part of their survival strategy, and they tend to have certain characteristics. One of them is they have a very complex environment that they navigate, and um, and. It, for example, in the case of, and they and they usually are not herbivores because you, as Larry Niven puts it in one of his uh, science fiction novels, you don't need brains to sneak up on a blade of grass, <laughs> but you do need brains if you're going to sneak up on the grass eaters. Mm. And so, um, so one of the things that more intelligent organisms here on earth tend to either be um either be carnivores or omnivores so you look at humans we're omnivores that's also why we have front facing eyes whereas horses and cows have more side facing eyes um because if you're if you're a, a horse your survival strategy is built on running away from things you don't have even cows have horns but horses they can kick but that's about it their real strategy is let's run away from sources of danger and so horses need side mounted eyes so they have vision that wraps around their bodies so that they can see sources of danger at a distance coming for them mm -hmm. um, humans being omnivores and thus meat eaters and thus hunters um, need front mounted eyes this is why cats and wolves and you know, big cats and, and dogs and humans and bears, we've got front mounted eyes because we're going to hunt stuff. And that means we need vision where our where what the data we're getting from our two eyes overlap so we can triangulate and use our stereoscopic vision to judge distances to how far that prey away is so we can attack it. And so um, so. I would I would expect that if intelligent aliens are coming here, they're most likely well, they're probably going to be they're probably going to be predators, whether they eat exclusively meat, whether they're obligate carnivores or omnivores, they're probably going to have a predatory evolutionary history, just like we do. They're probably going to have front mounted eyes or equivalent sensory organs that allow them to judge distances. Um, and if they have a predatory background, they're going to be okay, probably, with the use of violence in some situations. And they're going to be sensitive to threats to their security. Um, and so I think we can deduce some things about them, but we can't be too confident of the details of their psychology. If you compare, for example, humans and the most closely or one of the most closely related species to us is chimps. Okay, we share a lot of evolutionary history in, in common, but uh, despite Lancelot Link and Bedtime for Bonzo, chimps are actually quite different from humans in psychology. So if you imagine the difference between us and a chimp psychologically, you can expect comparable or greater distances between us and an alien psychologically, even if they're as intelligent as us or more. Yeah.
Yeah, that's a good point. Like even just looking at other primates that are like pretty closely related to us that have like very different attributes yeah. and habits and customs and so on. I, I have a an idea for a science fiction story I may write someday where aliens basically have psycho they're more advanced than us, but they're basically like chimps psychologically. So you know how chimps are hyper and they you know they they do the the let's threaten the other people before we even interact with them to show that don't mess with us. So the first things aliens do when they make to, to make contact with us is they destroy Pluto. <laughs> just bang planet killer they smash a huge asteroid into it just to show us that they're strong mm -hmm. and we shouldn't mess with them and they're spastic like chimps are. Well, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> a smart chimp is probably the scariest. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this uh, is this would be their form of slapping their chest yeah, and yeah. hooting. <laughs> yeah, I man, I like I'm not like anti chimp. I'm not one of mm -hmm. those people. But like, I, I wouldn't want to be in the same room as one. I'd be very nervous the whole time. They're much stronger than we are. Uh, have you seen like a shaved chimp or like a hairless one? Mm -mm. They're jacked. I mean, like there there was yeah. one that I saw that had like some disease where he lost all his hair, mm. and like they they just look very strong. <laughs> they are, yeah. Um. Okay, so should we move on to the, sure. uh, the next one? So this is actually by my. By the way, by the way, out of, out of curiosity, what number are we on right now? We are on number eight. Okay, eight of ten. So, um, oh, that is, sounds like a Borg designation. <laughs> This is, by my way, it's probably the best objection. I don't know if you uh -huh. agree with that, but um, this is uh, the low priors objection. Mm -hmm. So however unlikely it is that abductees, eyewitnesses, whistleblowers, and those are very different categories, but yep. um, however unlikely it is that they're lying or that they're just mistaken, mm -hmm. mundane explanations of their testimony are still more probable than the idea that we're being visited by aliens. So in other words, the kind of evidence we have isn't sufficient to overcome the low prior probability of genuine alien visitations. Well, uh, I, I think that I guess there are a number of things I could say here. Um, the first one is that um, you got to look at the evidence in front of you. You cannot allow priors are priors. Mm -hmm. They aren't conclusions. Um, because if you, I mean, this is kind of like David Hume's argument against miracles, which is frankly a terrible argument that, you know, miracles by nature are improbable. Therefore, we should, therefore, we should always assume there's a natural explanation for an event and therefore miracles are impossible. Well, okay. By that logic, you would rule out any, not just miracles, but any improbable occurrence. You could say, okay, the odds of twin, of having identical twins is improbable. Therefore, we should always assume that any evidence presented for identical twins is to be explained in some other way. Therefore, identical twins are impossible. Or if that's not improbable enough for you, pick something else. Yeah, but it seriously the, biases you towards only believing in things that happen with a sufficient, like, with high probability. Yeah. yeah. And and um, and so so 
we're at risk with this low priors argument of not doing what you need with the evidence and and taking it seriously and just sticking with your priors. Um, So uh, that's one possible problem here. Another possible problem is how are you establishing your priors? Mm-hmm. You know, um, how do you know what the prior probability is of aliens meeting you? I don't think you can rationally establish that. Um, you can say, well, they haven't made overt contact with us. Well, that's true, but no one's claiming they've made overt contact with us. You know, they haven't landed on the White House lawn, but that doesn't mean that you can dismiss evidence that they're present in some form. You know, like they've come here and they have some kind of covert research program or something that they're doing. Um so I I think that I'm I mean I'm sympathetic to saying well my priors are are low for this that's the other thing priors are all subjective they're they're from person to person um, and if someone says well my priors are low and I don't I haven't seen evidence that would overcome the low probability that my priors establish well I respect that I want to know well have you looked at evidence and have you looked at it open mindedly but if they say yeah I've I've taken an open minded look at the evidence and I'm just not convinced I'd say well I respect that I'm not convinced either Mm -hmm. that they're here but um but i don't think we can draw firm conclusions from that um if you want to say i haven't seen the evidence to convince me that's totally fine but if you want to say it's impossible aliens are here or it's so improbable that i'm going to dismiss and scorn anyone who thinks otherwise well then i think you're being a jerk and you're not taking a genuinely scientific attitude towards this question yeah i mean there is no agreed upon like objective way to set the prior probability for a hypothesis like this so in a way it's a good objection because we can't say definitely like no you're doing it wrong like you're setting your priors uh you know incorrectly uh when you when you set them that low and of course that means we could do the same thing we could say the same thing but that's not really my point like we could mm-hmm. set them higher and they couldn't say we're doing it wrong but um my main point is that it's it's widely recognized that setting the priors you know even though there's no agreed upon objective way to do it it's still agreed upon that um background knowledge has something to do with it. Mm -hmm. So if a hypothesis doesn't cohere well with other well-established knowledge, then that means the priors should be set lower than they otherwise would be. Then we would set the priors if it cohered nicely with background knowledge. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that the skeptic's case for setting the priors so low is dependent on exactly the kind of defeaters we've been talking about so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The reason they set their priors so low, it's, you know, it's totally dependent on these kinds of objections, which I think we've been undercutting, you know, this whole time. So like, yeah. I don't think their case for setting their priors so much lower than I'm setting them is is really justified. Yeah, I and I don't I, I agree. Um, they are setting priors based on the kinds of considerations we've been talking about and knocking down. That's not an argument that the priors should be set higher, but it is an argument to my mind that the priors and any conclusions that follow from them should be held tentatively. Um, so if someone says, well, I just I just think it's going to be too hard for them to get here, that's fine. Just don't be dogmatic about it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Like if someone said, well, look, I just, I can't believe when, you know, when, when there's some person testifying that they saw something, it is just really hard for me to accept that. And then they list off all of the objections that we've been discussing. It's like, if those objections worked, you'd have a great case mm-hmm. for setting the prior solo that you just don't believe people when they say these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just don't think that these objections, like these standard objections, are, I just don't think they're very good. Like, I don't yeah. think they're very compelling. So I just can't get behind. I'm like, look, I think you are setting your priors too low um, because the reasons you're citing are actually not the knockdown reasons that a lot of skeptics seem to think they are. So yeah. I mean, that's my main response to this low priors objection. Uh-huh. Um, I, I did want to touch on uh, one more thing before we move on to the to the ninth objection. Okay. Which is just that there are confirmed cases of deception in the past. So, you know, I yep. mentioned briefly, like, oh, maybe they're lying or mistaken. So, uh, you know, it's not just like some vague possibility, like, oh, people lie. Like, there have been confirmed cases of, like, disinformation campaigns involving aliens. Oh, yeah. I've covered them on Mysterious World. Um, I, I have, a, in fact, I, I've covered several of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, Stephen Greer, who is a famous figure in some UFO circles right now, I think he's a total fraud. Mm-hmm. And I've got the video to prove it. Um, he, he has actually hoaxed UFO encounters where what he's really doing is dropping flares out of an airplane in the distance and pretending it's a UFO. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, there's another guy named Terry Loveless who uh, I've covered on the show who I strongly suspect is making stuff up. Um, there is another there's a gentleman who was not making stuff up named Paul Benowitz, and I've covered him on the show. He lived by Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico and uncovered uh, what he thought was evidence of alien infiltration at Kirtland and in the Kirtland area. And so he reported it to the air force and the air force said, you're right. And specifically his contact was a man named Richard Doty, who was an air force intelligence officer and who was a lying liar who lies. <laughs> so, uh, and he, he ended up causing Paul Benowitz to have, uh, to have a, a nervous breakdown. And he even says he felt so bad afterwards. He confessed to Paul Benowitz that he had led him down this path and Benowitz at that point refused to believe him. Mm. Um, so, so, so why, yeah, why there are, there are, li- there are liars in all this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, why did he lie to Benowitz though? The explanation he gives is, well, he's number one, he was ordered to. So he, Richard Doty is not the bad guy. Um, but the explanation is that um, so Benowitz was an inventor and he was into technology and gadgets and he started pointing his gadgets at Kirtland Air Force Base and um, and picked up on a classified project. Mm. And rather than tell him so and Benowitz thought what he was seeing was alien. And so rather than tell him, dude, we want you to back off because this is really a classified project. It's not aliens. They decided to mislead him and say, oh, yeah, you're right. This is very interesting. Uh, Let's stay in touch about this alien thing you've uncovered. Um, But it was to prevent him and more dangerous people like the Soviets from learning about this classified project. And this was one of the things that was true of the UFO community during the Cold War. 
was it was penetrated by U.S. and Soviet intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, because if you got these people who think aliens may be out there and they're they're going out and they're monitoring things in the sky, they're going to see they're going to see uh, covert aircraft testing. And the Soviets want to know about our covert aircraft and our people want to keep track of what the Soviets might learn and from the UFO community about this. And so you had you had U.S. military personnel infiltrating the UFO community to keep track of what the UFO community knows and thus what the UFO community could pass on to our nation state competitors. Yeah, I mean, I meant to mention this earlier with um, with the hypnosis cases um, that like there is, you know, even if you are uh, someone who's more convinced of genuine alien visitations than I am, there's just no avoiding that there is just a lot of nonsense in the UFO community. There's a ton of it. Yeah, a ton of it. And like you don't have to be um, like a full blown skeptic to recognize that or to use some skeptical resources for some of the cases that um, come up. And yeah, I guess I just wanted to to mention that first, but also just that, you know, deception like coordinated deception intentional deception is a real thing that has happened and that you know ufo believers have fallen for um often through no fault of their own like they they had good reason to believe what they were being told but it it was a lie yeah you have someone from you you saw this alien thing and you contact the air force base and tell them about what you saw and they send an agent over who says you know you're absolutely right Mm -hmm. you got good reason to think he's telling the truth until you learn that uh, what's really going on yeah. Um, so I heard you mention this, uh, that the Majestic 12 documents are, are generally regarded as, as not fake. Okay. Yes. Do we um, need to explain what those are or? Uh, yeah, just briefly. Okay. And also why they're considered a uh, fake. Yeah. So the Majestic 12 documents were a set of documents that purported to come from government and military sources. Um, and they sketched this history about after Roswell, um, President Eisenhower or President Truman formed this group of 12 experts known as Majestic 12, also called MJ-12, to oversee what we knew about UFOs. And that led to contact with extraterrestrials and President Eisenhower signed a treaty with them and had a meeting with them in the 1950s. And and we've been reverse engineering UFOs and Roswell was an alien crash. And we've even had ETs sort of here on Earth in our custody, kind of, that we later returned. And all this stuff happened. And we're reverse engineering UFOs and we've signed a treaty with them. So we've got a off-world allies and stuff. And this was all coming out in the 1980s. He's at the height of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So we're tell what this what this the uh, and because we did seriously. I mean, people think of 1962 as being the height of the Cold War, and that was a height. But also, we almost went to nuclear war several times in the 1980s, such as after the 1983 Abel Archer incident. And um, and so we've got these really tense relations with Russia. And it's just so convenient that all of a sudden there are these documents coming out saying, oh, guess what? U.S. has alien tech and alien allies. They've got a treaty with them. Maybe Soviet leadership, you shouldn't mess with the Americans because they're going to go all alien on your butt. Um, Well, uh, so that's a plausible motive 
for what the MJ-12 documents were. But what actually convinced a lot of UFO researchers were the same things that convinced a lot of people that the um, the Rosemary, what's her last name? Um, the nineteen, the year two thousand, Bush, uh, President George W. Bush Air Force documents that got Dan Ra- ended Dan Rather's career. That those were fake mm-hmm. anachronisms. There were things in the MJ-12 documents that were anachronisms. There were also stylometric studies that were done that indicated that even though these two documents are claiming to be from disparate sources based on stylometric qualities like length of sentences and the common grammatical features and word choice, this is really by the same guy. Mm-hmm. even though it's claiming to be by two different guys. And, of course, these things were released anonymously through mail. People just got, you know, film of them in the mail, and and so we don't have provenance on them. And it looks like Richard Doty, our mm-hmm. friend from the Paul Benowitz case, was one of the people involved in this. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. Um, does that mean that everything in those documents... You know, like we can't trust any of it. I've just seen little snapshots mm-hmm. of it. And I'm like, well, I mean, you know, some stuff about like standard operating procedure. If there's like a UFO crash, it's like, mm-hmm. I mean, wouldn't they have one of those? <laughs> like, I mean, they, they, that actually they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and it's not in the MJ-12 documents. We have it in other documents about what would happen if because people thought about this um, and they've thought about other things like, you know, what would happen if an alien probe showed up and said, hi, let's talk. I mean, there have been think tanks who have developed uh, protocols for situations like that. And um and similarly, well, what people thought, well, okay, so what? It, we're, here we are. We're a uh, we're we're a team that's commissioned to to deal with aircraft crashes. What if it's an off-world aircraft? What do we do? How do we handle that? And so, sure, yeah, policies like that have been developed independently of the MJ-12 documents. Now, when it comes to the MJ-12 documents themselves, they they always say you want to plant a lie between two truths to make it more believable. So some of the information in the MJ-12 documents may be accurate. I would suspect it's the less exotic stuff. Right in them, um, and but fundamentally, because we know a lot of what's in them is fake, I would say don't trust any of it unless you have independent confirmation from other sources that are better. So next is the um, the illusion objection. So it, you know the objection goes: many UFO sightings are produced by illusions. You know, the eyewitnesses are just misjudging how far away the object is, mm-hmm. and uh, you know why couldn't that explain all the sightings? Well, because not all of them are in that are in that category of something distant that you can easily misinterpret. Um, J. Allen Hynek uh, developed the famous close encounters categorization system of you know first, second, and third kind, um, but that's only half of his classification system. In addition to the close encounters. There are the distant encounters. Uh, so the distant encounters are things like um, there were three of them: uh, daylight discs. So something you see in the day that's you know, but it's very small and distant, looks like a disc maybe. Uh, nocturnal lights. So it's night and you see a light in the distance. It's moving, kind of funny. And radar returns. And so these are uh, these are distant encounters with something. And it's very easy for people to misinterpret things in a distance. 
you know, but they're not all in a distance. Um, <clears throat> that's why he developed the close encounters scale, where you can not only see something is there, but you can make it out in substantial detail. And so Hynek's first uh, level of classification for the close encounters was, you know, you see a UFO at a distance of, say, 500 feet or less so that you can make out detail about it. Close encounters, the second kind was not only do you see it, but it inter interacts with its environment in some way, like leaving landing gear traces on the ground or um, being, um, you know, uh, frightening a dog or something like that. Um, then close encounters with the third kind is where you actually see apparent occupants of of the craft. So even if you say, well, people have been mistaking the planet Venus or they've been mistaking swamp gas, which is actually one that came from Heineck himself back when he was a debunker. Mm -hmm. He initially was a debunker, but then he came around and came to believe this is a real phenomenon. Um, but he infamously proposed a particular sighting in Michigan, as I recall, was maybe swamp gas. Yeah. And and that that he was widely mocked for that. That was actually, um, um I think it was near Door, Michigan, and I, I lived there for a short time. Oh, cool. I didn't it learn was, about that until after the fact. <laughs> was there much swamp gas near there? Not that I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, he kind of regretted that line. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's not all stuff that you can easily misinterpret. Uh, you know, there were situations where people would see, oh, there's this glowing thing in the sky. And what it really was, was a, was a, a spy plane that's mm -hmm. flying high enough that even though the sun is set where you are, the sun is still shining where it is. It's reflecting off of it and it looks like it's glowing. Mm. But that's a distant encounter. That's not one of the close ones. And so um, there are illusions that would, you know, trick people like this glowing spy plane illusion. Um, but they just don't all fit into that into that category. There are other credible sightings, including now ones that, um, you know, we've uh, we've gotten gun camera footage of. I mean, it's kind of sucky gun, gun camera footage because it's not the classified good stuff. They're not going to let our they're not going to let the Russians know how good our actual high res cameras are on our on our planes um, and what they can really detect. But we've got some declassified footage of stuff that, you know, is not easily explained. There are there are people who've tried to produce explanations and have claimed things about it. But you go back to the eyewitnesses and they say, no, that wouldn't work for this reason, this reason, this reason. And other experts who've examined the footage saying, no, 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 this that that explanation this is not some this is not a flying turkey yeah. or whatever. Um and it doesn't look like one and in the footage, even in the bad declassified footage. So I think that while there are illusions that trick people or people misperceive, that does not explain all of the data. Right. Yeah. I mean, it can explain some sightings, but mm -hmm. it's just like if you were familiar with a range of UFO stories and, and even videos, it's like, I don't, I just don't think you would say this. Like skeptics seem to get a lot of, mileage out of just not knowing anything about the subjects they're skeptical yeah. of but frequently yeah. unfortunately yes yeah. um you know like two cases that came to mind um 
Well, first of all, like I saw some video that a skeptical friend shared of um, some people who were set up in the desert for some reason with like mm-hmm. tents and a camera crew. And then like a fly buzzed across their mm-hmm. camera and they were like, wow, a UFO like right away. And like, I, I don't know what <laughs> their issue was, but like it was so evidently a fly. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they're showing this video like, oh, doesn't this prove that they're all morons? And it's like. Well, no, <laughs> like that couldn't explain yeah, every and, case. Like, yeah, that's one of the things I do on Mysterious World is um, when I make the list of so here are the likely possible explanations and we go through them. I frequently will say, well, I'm sure this explains some of the cases, mm-hmm. but it's not a good general explanation for all of the cases because there's other data that doesn't fit this one. And and I'm and, and depending on the particular mystery we're looking at, I may find multiple ones and say, okay, yeah, I think these first three alternatives they're they're all contributing causes to this, and none of them are exotic, but they're not good general explanations because there's still a bunch of cases that don't fit any of these patterns. Yeah, like two that came to mind um, when I you know first came across this objection. First off was um it was a story that you covered on Mysterious World about mm-hmm. a woman who uh she was in the and I'm forgetting her name and the name of the woods but I'm sure you know it of the she's in the woods in Texas and there was mm-hmm. this bright blinding light she was with it was like two older women and a young boy um, Oh this is the uh, Cash Landrum UFO encounter Yeah Bet, uh, Betty Cash and Betty Vicky Cash. Landrum That's right Okay yeah um yeah, so I mean, like, when you think about their encounter, it's like, oh, well, maybe they were misjudging the distance. It's like, that just doesn't even begin to apply <laughs> to like the, the specific case. No. Of, yeah, of yeah her, because, her because, because their, their car got so hot. It was they were so close to the object and it was emitting flame. They got their car got so hot that like Vicky Landrum puts her hand on the dash in the car and it leaves a handprint. And uh, Betty Cash has to open the car door handle using the sleeve of her leather jacket because she burned her hand on it. And then all three of them get symptoms of acute radiation syndrome. Yeah, that you perfectly know, so. correlate with how long they were outside the car. Right. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. It's like, oh, maybe it, maybe they just misjudged how far away it was. It's like, you just <laughs> you have to look at the case. Like, it has nothing to do with that. Or yeah. another one that came to mind was, like, the uh, the David Fravor stuff, where mm-hmm. it seems like you have multiple witnesses. Like, some are on the ground, some are in the air, some are yep. looking at screens, like, you know, instruments, and some are looking at it. And it's like, they're all reporting the same thing. It, it could not. It just doesn't seem like a very plausible explanation when you have multiple witnesses who are looking at it with different instruments. Well, especially because David Fravor was the lead pilot in a group of planes. And so they have footage of the. This is from the Tic Tac incident from 2004 off the coast of San Diego. Um, it, you've got different planes at different locations in the air. You can use triangulation to figure out how far away it is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, not to repeat myself, but it seems like skeptics do get a lot of mileage out of not knowing much about the uh, the subject they're skeptical of. But um, we've already granted that, like, yeah, there are certain sightings that could be explained this way. It's just it doesn't apply to all of them. And, you know, anyway, yeah. um, should we move on to the uh, the final objection here? Yeah, sure. Let's deal with the well, let's deal with the big bad. Yeah, this is that we saved the worst for last. So it's um, it's it's almost barely worth mentioning. But I've heard it enough times. That it's it's a it maybe be a good idea to address some of the armchair psychologizing that goes on 
about like UFO phenomena. Mm-hmm. So this is just the psychoanalysis objection. Um, okay. So, you know, this is a really the belief in UFOs and aliens. It's just, a, you know, a modern manifestation of the religious impulse. Um, and then some people go into varying levels of detail here, you know, noting mm-hmm. parallels between um, belief in aliens and, uh, you know, theistic belief or something like that. Hmm. Okay, well, um, so I need some data to work with. Uh, what would what what do you see as the most plausible arguments in favor of this hypothesis? Well, I, I guess they note that, um, you know, that belief in this kind of thing, you know, arises at the same time that religion seems to be declining, at least in like relative terms. Okay, um, so like in the West, you have. A lot of uh, so I mean again this this almost involves uh, presuppositions that we've already mm-hmm. talked about like well given that it's geographically concentrated in the U.S. and temporally concentrated in the present day, um, you know then they say well this arose at the same time religion was declining in the West, um, and then they note their little similarities and then they're like oh this is like a debunking explanation this is why mm-hmm. people believe in this kind of thing, mm-hmm. which I mean you know one obvious reply is like. Um, you you're pretty knowledgeable about this subject and um you're religious it's not like it's not like the alien ufo stuff is just religion for atheists it's like oh the only people who take this seriously are atheists and agnostics it's like no there are plenty of religious people who don't dismiss it and say it's all demons yeah Um, yeah so i mean it's tough because this is very slippery like when we were talking about this a little bit beforehand it's like it's hard to even steel man this objection because it is just kind of the slippery psychoanalysis you know yeah so in terms of this one i'd say a few things the first one is we're in we're in severe jeopardy of post hoc ergo propter hoc even if it's true that um that belief in alien appearances happened after um decline of religion in various parts of the world that's that's the, that does not establish a causal relationship here, mm-hmm. and um, so you're in severe jeopardy of the post hoc ergo propter hoc foundation. Um, you cannot say um, I got a college degree and then I got in a car accident, therefore college degrees cause car accidents. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, uh, in this case. Uh, even if it's true, well, that alien uh, visitation reports arose after a decline of religion, um, that doesn't establish any kind of correlation between the two. You can you can similarly say, um, well, I've already given an example, but um, this is this is just a fallacy unless you can go further and establish some kind of causal connection. So how might we do that? Well, one way of attempting to do that would be to look at um, other areas and say, do non-religious areas have higher proportions of belief in UFOs? Um, Well, um, doesn't really look like it. You got a high percentage of belief in UFOs actually all over the world mm-hmm. in both religious and non-religious places. Um, th- another one is what's the theory behind this? Why would someone, why would somebody want to believe, why would it, what, is, what is belief in UFOs fulfilling for people 
that religion otherwise would fulfill. Well, okay, um, the two things that religion deals with are the divine and the afterlife. And the usually in the divine, at least in religions historically, it's you've been getting help from the divine and, you know, like in this life. And then you entrust yourself to the to the divine for the afterlife. And so um, so do people believe that aliens are helping them in their lives well, maybe a few people believe that, but not so many. Mm-hmm. And do our people entrusting themselves to the aliens in the afterlife? Well, maybe a few people, but probably even less. <laughs> so um, it doesn't look like the that this is plausibly fulfilling the same functions that uh, religious people have. Then you also mentioned there are religious people who believe in these. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you look at how do you how, how are you how, how are you correlating the sudden onset of belief about extraterrestrials, which I mean, you had speculation about them before, but the UFO craze launched in the summer of 1947. And it's not like there was a dramatic decline in religion right before the summer of 1947. In fact, there was a big boost in religion because we had just come through World War II and you had, you know, people all over the planet praying for victory and stuff like that. And they thought, you know, to the religious ones thought God came through and the good guys won and the Nazis didn't win. And and they're not attributing that fact to aliens. They're attributing that to God. And you have this big, I mean, the 1950s are not generally regarded as the nadir of religion in the United States. It's actually, oh yeah, that's back when everybody went to church. So uh, this, there are multiple aspects of this that just make it sound like armchair psychologizing that has not in any way been rigorously tested and does not appear to be a good fit for the actual data. Yeah. If you're going to engage in psychoanalysis, you know, at least do it well. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and this is something else. I am very hesitant. You know, I get calls. Uh, you know, I do a, one of the shows I do is called Catholic Answers Live. People call in. They can ask me any question they want, pretty much. And I regularly get questions about why do these people believe this thing? Mm-hmm. And I, I get the sense that a lot of times what they're what they want to know is what's the psychological reason for this? And I just I I never want to go there. I mean, I occasionally may tentatively offer some thoughts about what psychological reasons could contribute to it. But I'm very hesitant to do even that. I do not want to psychologize other people and explain their beliefs psychologically. I want to say, what's the evidence for them? And the overwhelming um, uh, in part because I want my beliefs respected, mm-hmm. you know, instead of saying, oh, you believe this because you've got this psychological characteristic. Is, no, thank you. Let's talk about the evidence I have for my beliefs. And I want to do other people the same courtesy. So what I tend to do is I say, well, they believe this because they think they have this evidence and we can talk about that evidence and see if it's good or not. But it's generally a um, a weak move to attribute. 
attribute someone else's beliefs to psychological causes. Um, what that generally tells me is you don't have a good grasp of the evidence and you don't think you can take down their belief based on the evidence. That's why you're resorting to psychology, because it doesn't require you to do any research and it doesn't require you to do any hard thinking and argumentation. You're just sloppily attributing their beliefs to something non-evidential rather than actually engaging the evidence and dealing with that. It's lazy apologetics. Yeah. I mean, there was one podcast I listened to, which I otherwise like, where uh-huh. the guest they had um, just dismissed the entire UFO phenomenon within 10 seconds and mm-hmm. immediately and jumped straight to this is just a religious phenomenon um, in a secular guise, like within 10 seconds. It, like and it, it was basically the dynamic that you described where it's like I, they they could not have won any argument with anybody about mm-hmm. like that's kind of thing. So they're just like, well, I mean, it's obviously ridiculous to think, you know, you might think that creatures like us have, might have evolved like we did and just mm-hmm. been around longer, you know, and advanced and traveled through space, but that's obviously ridiculous. So we have to immediately resort to psychoanalysis. Um, but yeah, it's just, it is lazy. And it's also, um, it's just frustratingly, vague i guess like i found an article on vox it's also it's also runs the risk of being unfalsifiable it's purely if it's it's unfalsifiable okay then this is just your this may be your belief but it's not a scientific belief because you can't falsify it yeah I mean, like Vox ran this long interview with someone who wrote a whole book. I don't know. I guess the whole book is like this, but the interview was just like excruciating. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was just an interview about this exact kind of thing of like, oh, this is like a secular religion or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's just lazy apologetics, like you said. Yeah, I psychologizing other people instead of engaging their their position and saying, so what evidence do you have for this? Why do you think this? It, it is very infuriating to me, and especially when people are critiquing other people who aren't present and they're not getting their own input and their own say for, no, actually, this is why I believe this. Um, I, it, it's ungentlemanly and disrespectful to my mind. It's kind of like there's a... Um, there's an apocryphal story, I'm sure, about uh, in the British about the British legal system. So in, in Great Britain, here in America, we have attorneys or lawyers, but there they split the role in two. So you have solicitors and barristers, and one of them is supposed to like prepare the case and work with the client and the other presents it in court. And there's a famous, no doubt, apocryphal story about, you know, the guy who's going to present it in court. He's got his client there. He hasn't done his own research. He picks up the case and it says there is no case abuse the opponent. And and that's essentially what this is. You're not engaging the case. You're just abusing your opponent. (laughs) I mean, just returning to uh, the low priors objection. My main argument, I guess, for being open-minded about this kind of thing is not just that, you know, the universe is going to turn out stranger than we probably think it will. Um, even though I think it will turn out stranger than most people think it will. Um, it's really just that like the defeaters that are commonly offered are just not that good. And people are coming into this just with their priors set way too low. So when they hear some testimony about alien, uh, activity or just like ufos or whatever it's like i think some people just there's nothing you could say to convince them but they're not necessarily being irrational 
they just they think they have very good reasons to always go with the more mundane explanations. And what I'm saying, what what I think that, you know, you've done here today is like undercut most of those pretty effectively so that you can't really justify setting your priors as low as you were, um, especially if you were coming into this thinking that all those were really great objections. And then, um, you know, I think after hearing, yeah, you have to update, you know, you have to like update based on what you just heard from, uh, from, you know, the opposing side. And it's like, okay, maybe you have been setting your priors too low and maybe that's why you're considering this to be so ridiculous. So that's my little spiel. Yeah, I would agree. And like I said, I'm not convinced that UFOs are real. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of of extraterrestrial or other exotic origin, yeah. I'm not convinced of that. But I am open to it because I recognize these defeaters don't defeat. Yeah. And so I've got to be open to it. And there is some anomalous evidence, you know, like the videos that got released from the Defense Department that are not easily explained. And they're not the only such evidence we have there. There there are cases that are credible and not easily explainable. So I think I think the rational position on this is um, open minded, but the uh, open-minded but skeptical in the sense of using critical thinking Mm -hmm. as opposed to skeptical in the sense of not open-minded yeah dogmatic and curious yeah (laughs) Um, unfortunately that applies to a lot of skeptics just criminally incurious dogmatists um maybe i think it applies to more of them than you do but well it all it just feels so good when you know you're right and everybody else is stupid Mm -hmm. and 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 so you know it takes some effort to say hey maybe other people have a point maybe maybe i'm not as maybe i'm not the only one who's got a monopoly on truth here and i need to actually take seriously positions that I haven't taken seriously before. Yeah. So, I mean, I am, I think I'm with you. I mean, I, I'm mm-hmm. basically agnostic on this. I'm mm-hmm. open-minded. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, is there anything else that you want to uh, touch on before we sign off here? No, not really. I guess I should mention for people, since we've mentioned mysterious world a few times in the show, I should let people know how they can locate it. Um, so it's in Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher and all the standard ones. Um, so you can just look it up in your podcast app, whatever that happens to be. Uh, you can also check out the video version of it because we do a video version of it and we have video editors who, you know, add elements into it visually to help bring points across more clearly. Uh, you can check that out at my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, J-I-M-M-Y. A-K-I-N as in Nancy. Um, And while you're there, do all the YouTube things, you know, like, subscribe, hit the bell notifications and comment and all that stuff. Um, And I appreciate it because I am trying to grow my channel and everybody's welcome as I try to encourage um, a, a good discussion uh of of the issues we talk about i never expect everybody to, to agree with me on everything and i regularly get messages that um you know are express other viewpoints and want to challenge things i've said and I, as long as they're respectful i'll respond back to them you know i have feedback shows 
feedback episodes that are bonus episodes that don't come out on Fridays where I interact with what people have written in, including alternatives that people have proposed or criticisms people have made of a position I've taken. And that's all totally fine. I in, I enjoy the free flow of ideas and, and that discussion. Um, also, you can go to the, the uh, homepage of the podcast, which can be found at mysterious.fm. So FM, like in FM radio, unfortunately, it's not .com because that one is not available. But Mysterious.fm was available, so you can go there. All right. Well, Jimmy Aiken, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your time. And, uh, you know, it's been a it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, I've had a great time. Thank you so much for the invitation.